Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm your host, Joe McHugh. And soon after beginning work on the Rosin the Bow project, I came across an article in the New York Times about the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., and how they had just purchased a painting called The Jolly Flat Boatman by the artist George Caleb Bingham. Bingham made the painting in 1846, and it shows a flatboat gliding down a wide stretch of river, and there is a man dancing with his arms outstretched in wild abandon, while another man plays the fiddle, and another beats time on a tin pan. You have probably seen an image of this painting. It is nearly as iconic within the American genre as the painting of General Washington crossing the Delaware. Well, since 1956, the painting was on loan to the National Gallery, but then the owner decided to sell it. The gallery very much wanted to buy the painting, but given the extraordinary high prices being paid for works of art these days, they were not at all sure they could. So they launched a special campaign to raise the money and were eventually able to purchase the painting. And since the painting involves a fiddle, I wanted to know more about the painting and why the gallery felt it was so important that that painting, The Jolly Flat Boatman, should belong to the American people for generations to come. Then fate intervened when I was asked by the Violin Society of America to give the opening keynote at their convention in November of 2015. The convention was taking place in Baltimore. So I contacted Stephen Ackert, Curator of Music at the National Gallery, to see if I might visit the gallery and interview him about some of the paintings in the gallery's collection that had some connection with a bowed stringed instrument, such as the fiddle in The Jolly Flat Boatman. So the day after I gave my keynote, I took the train from Baltimore to our nation's capital and met Stephen at the gallery. We were joined by jazz violinist Bruno Nasta, who helps arrange the music performances that take place inside the gallery on a regular basis. Here then is our conversation as we made our way from gallery to gallery, looking at paintings from the Renaissance to the middle of the 19th century. So join us now for our walkabout as we go from gallery to gallery. And to make it even more fun, you can visit our podcast page on our website to view the paintings that we will talk about. Our website is rosinthebow.org. Well, we're standing in front of uh, one of the gallery's great Dutch paintings from the Golden Age, the 17th century. It's by Jan Steen, and it's called The Dancing Couple. And it's actually a wedding party scene. We have the bride and groom dancing very energetically in the middle. A large number of family members of all ages gathered around. Typical of Jan Steen, the scene is quite a mess. There's a lot of junk all over the floor. And the musicians are perched on a kind of balcony over on the right side of the painting. There is a fiddler and a fifer. And in my opinion, the function that the fiddler performs in this painting and the fiddle itself is that it calls to mind to the viewer the sound atmosphere of a party. This is the music they would have heard 
when they were getting together to have fun and to dance. And the painting is supposed to project fun. Typical of Jan Steen, however, there is something amiss, and that is that everybody in this painting is having a great time except the bride. If we look carefully at her face, she's looking kind of wistfully in our direction as if, would you please come and rescue me from this? Is there a chance, uh, one of my favorite films is Cold Comfort Farm. I don't know if you've ever seen that film, but basically you have somebody marrying from different classes. And I, I wonder whether we could imagine she might have come from a more upper class family. Because this has a definite feeling of a little bit more folk-like. In fact, the child's got one of those little toys you play with where it runs back and forth and two men hammer a spike. So I, I, I'm wondering whether she's looking at these, you know, there's a lot of drinking going on, a lot of enjoyment. The time this was made, uh, this was painted, would have been really at the very first stages of what we think of as the modern violin. Right. And so, would you want to say anything about the, the instrument itself as it appears in this image? I can say something about the instrument itself. Uh, the gallery has a collection of paintings that depict uh, some professional-grade instruments and some folk instruments, and this is a classic example of a folk instrument. The lad who's playing the violin is a, rather of a small stature on the right there, so it looks almost like he's playing a viola, but I think he actually is playing a violin, and it's typical of a period instrument during that time, during the 1600s, I believe it is. And uh, it has a, a Baroque fingerboard, which is uh, shorter than our modern fingerboards. Also, um, there's no chin rest, as we uh, call it in modern times. The chin rest came somewhere after 1840, and it's missing a chin rest. Also, the way he's playing it is very much in a a folk fashion where it's resting on his shoulder rather than under his chin, actually. And the musicians are uh, really depicting quite a hootenanny there. So um, there's a lot of fun, there's a lot of drinking, a lot of eating going on, and these guys are really probably playing their favorite dance numbers. I like the fact uh, that even today in the folk tradition you'll find the Fiddlers, not so much really anymore, but one generation back would play the fiddle that way on their chest more. Mm -hmm. And you get a whole different feel for how you can do a lot more shuffling and rhythms, the kind of rhythm, the instrument being turned into a rhythm instrument. You can also sing in that fashion, mm -hmm. as uh, a lot of uh, modern electric violinists are doing that are playing in rock bands. Um, they use a like a V-shaped body electric violin, which attaches, it has a neck strap and it attaches lower on the shoulder so that it frees the jaw to sing. Yeah. The bride to me seems a bit ungainly, almost as if she's the last daughter and she's just being sold off as a dowry. Well, I like the fiddler too, that uh, the painter uh -huh. would have seemed to have some real sense of what it means to play that instrument. I'm yeah. thinking the wrist has a fiddler's wrist. But see, look at carefully at the bow. Uh, it's uh, an arched type bow, not a modern bow that uh, Mr. Tort invented. So it's a Baroque style bow. Yeah. Homemade, probably. Yeah, and you're saying that the uh, fingerboard doesn't come up nearly as right. far as the bridge. Look at the distance between the bridge. And notice how the bridge is much flatter and placed closer to his face rather than the fingerboard. And look at the gap between the fingerboard and the bridge. It's just huge. And so I don't think he 
played out of first position, actually. Do you think that was accurate at the time? The painters, yes, this painters. is accurate. Now, when we go see other paintings, we'll show you some discrepancies where the artist was less authentic about what's the music that's printed in the painting and the instruments and how they're depicted. Now we're looking at a Dutch painting from about the same period, but we have a completely different scene. Its title is The Concert, and it's by Gerrit von Honthorst. And it's obvious immediately from the dress of the characters in the scene that this is courtly rather than countrified, what we saw in the previous painting. And I'll be interested to hear what Bruno has to say about these instruments. I believe that they are represented to show the finest workmanship that was available at the time, as opposed to the more rough-hewn craftsmanship of the other paintings. So all of that is consistent in presenting a scene that is supposed to be refined and courtly. Now, it says concert, but what we see is the viola da gambist of the group pointing to some part of the score for the benefit of the other players. So it's more like a rehearsal scene, actually, than a concert. And maybe he's using the old meaning of the word that concert is whenever musicians are getting together to yeah. do something together. Like in the Baroque world, a consort right. would be which right. instruments played together. There is also a secret message in this painting, as there was in the other one. In this case, the Viola da Gamba player, a man who we see from the back and sort of in quarter profile, is in fact the King of Bohemia, who was one of Honthorst's patrons. And we know this because he painted him in full face in other scenes, and, and this is he. And it is apparent now that the meaning of this painting is the king of Bohemia is a good ruler and has a lot of things to teach his subjects, so they should cooperate with him the way that the members of a consort cooperate with the leader of the consort. Well, that's interesting, and you get the difference between the first painting we looked at, where you just assume the music is learned by ear, which happens in the folk tradition, and here you have the printed music the same way you would have printed words, printed laws. This right. whole idea of organizing society around a process that is sort of hierarchical in, in nature. Right. And this painting depicts, uh, you know, but just by looking at the silk garments that they're wearing, the lovely instruments finely crafted that they're using, and they are educated, you know, this is an elevated class level. So the, uh, the, the violin that's depicted there is a bona fide violin probably in the early stages, and it is set up like a Baroque instrument, but very ornamental, so it was expensive in its day. This gamba that he's playing, and also you can see evidence of the Baroque-style bows, which are more arch-shaped rather than our modern bows, and uh, the two lutes there are finely crafted. One of the lutes actually has an ornamental scroll, which depicts, I believe, a lion's head. So in its day, these were very ornamented, and lovely instruments. And 
let me also add, you're going to see a lot of violins and handheld instruments in these paintings because as instruments have evolved, the violin was always a, a very portable instrument, easy to carry, easy to cover, and you'll see a lot of that. In fact, later on, we might see a depiction of what's called a, a dance master's fiddle or a pocket fiddle in pochette, and those are very small bodies, much like a half-size violin with a full-size neck and fingerboard on it, and dance masters would carry those around and maybe go busking on the street or perhaps get involved in an impromptu dance session on the street or in a pub where they could just earn a little extra cash busking. But an important thing to note about Honthorst is that he lived in the southern part of the Netherlands, he studied with Italian painters, and that whole school that he belonged to is noted for its mixture of Italian and Dutch techniques. One of his best-known paintings, and I believe it's called The Jolly Violinist, or The Happy Violinist, that might be the title, and it shows the violinist just by himself, but he's holding up this glass with the violin, and I'm noticing in this painting, very distinct, that this individual's holding up a glass. So this, this combination almost of uh, Bacchus, or the idea of what alcohol is to the fiddler, of course, is a, of long standing. Anything you want to say about that? Alcohol uh, to uh, a scene with musicians in it is uh, goes hand in hand. I mean, this obviously is not a union band. They don't allow drinking, but it's, it's just, uh, there's a lot of happiness here. There's a lot of people cavorting and, and talking and uh, imbibing, and uh, they're getting their work done. So it's it's uh, half work, half pleasure. They're, they're really... Uh, intent on showing their friends their technical ability and their musicality, as well as getting ready for the party. You're a musician yourself? A professional violinist, yeah. So do you think that, uh, again, the sub-message that alcohol opens up certain channels or creates a level of relaxation that allows for something to occur when you're playing music? Sure, and so does music. It tames the savage beast, they say, and so does you know, the alcohol just contributes to that relaxed environment. This is a, a very jovial, relaxed environment, even though it is a rehearsal. It's a rehearsal you can tell amongst friends who admire each other and are, having a, are going to have and are having a great time rehearsing and getting ready for the, the musical event. Yeah, I wish I was there. Yeah, me too, actually. Because <laughs> one of those girls is a real cutie pie. <laughs> We've moved back about a hundred years, and now we're looking at an Italian painting by the great Orazio Gentileschi, dating from about 1600. And this is titled The Lute Player, and it shows a young woman. We see her from the back, but she has turned her head so that we can see her face as well. And she's tuning her lute. In front of her on the table is music that's open, which indicates that she is educated enough to read music, and a complete broken consort of Baroque instruments. Violin, cornetto, recorder, and of course the lute in her hand. And this is a symbolic reference to the breadth of her knowledge of music. And what do we know about the painter, his own life? Uh, Orazio Gentileschi, was one of the great realist painters of the Italian Baroque. 
And he had a daughter by the name of Artemisia, who was a talented painter and a talented amateur musician. So is there some speculation this is his daughter? We have paintings where we're quite sure that his daughter was the model, and they, they don't look like this model. But there is a hint of Gentileschi's problem with his daughter in this painting. If you take a close look at her dress, it's coming apart at the seam. It's untied. And this may be a, a hinting reference of Gentileschi to the frustration that he had with his daughter, who wanted to pursue her talents instead of getting married. And this was a lifelong frustration for Gentileschi because he was proud of her, he was delighted with what she could do, but he also wanted her to get married. <laughs> And be secure. And then she and would the, have to give it all up, of course. And, yeah. But in that day, be secure yeah. by being married. Yeah. She has lovely, uh, lovely color in her cheeks. In this. Yeah, That's, this was Gentileschi's mastery of human figures and garments and cloth. And the figure of the violin is just uh, exquisite. I mean, that's a very, for my eye, a difficult angle to paint or draw a violin. Yeah, it's what they call foreshortening. Yeah. And he and was a master was of that, yeah. That was mm -hmm. new in art. Mm -hmm. One thing to, to make note of the instruments that are depicted in the painting is they are Italian instruments. First of all, we look at the lute. It's very finely crafted. It's got many, many strings. And also, someone's gone to the trouble of depicting uh, the fretboard. You, you can see how they tied strings around the back of the neck and the front of the neck, and those are all adjustable to tune the instruments on the fretboard. And she's obviously well-skilled. She's got beautiful form when she's playing the lute, so she's well-educated in the music, in the music uh, using the instruments. And also, when we look at the violin in detail, it is a Baroque instrument, but it is a classic Italian design. The Italians came up with a design which they call la mandolina, and it has, if you look at the body of the instrument, it has three concentric circles. The upper bout is a circle, and then you can draw another concentric circle in the middle and another concentric circle that's larger towards the lower bout of the instrument. Uh, instruments that are crafted in the more northern climes tend to have blockier shoulders. Uh, the lower bouts are also not as rounded, perfect circles. They're, they're almost squared off. Also, the, the bow here is depicted as a Baroque bow, and in the traditional old style, uh, the violin is hung by a ribbon rather than placed in a case for protection, so it's hung on the wall somewhere. And, but this is a very fine, all these instruments are extremely finely crafted. And this uh, music that's depicted in the painting is also hand-drawn. It uh, doesn't look like it comes from a printing press. So the, the violin's laying on the table, but it has that ribbon around the scroll for hanging it on the wall. Right, and I, I also can want to mention the sensuality of this painting. You have a beautiful maiden, you have the back of her neck and her shoulders exposed, and then when you look at the instrument and its feminine form, it's uh, a, a very beautiful and sensual shape. It's like the idea of McLuhan that uh, our tools become the extension of our nervous systems or persons. I like to think that this painting is a tribute to the human form also. The back of the lute, the shape of the belly of the violin, 
and then uh, in conjunction with the form of the beautiful maiden. I love it. I really do. And I love the fact that I don't know why this this not being uh, tied, why that uh, bespeaks something, but it does. Almost, you know, a freeing, getting outside the constraints of what was expected. Yes. Another Italian painting from a contemporary of Gentileschi, Giulio Cesare Procaccini. This one is called The Ecstasy of the Magdalene. And in this case, the painter shows an angel playing a violin as a symbol for the total rapture and ecstasy that is the theme of the whole painting. Angels playing string instruments is a Christian um, carrying forward of an ancient Greek idea that the most uplifting music that you can possibly produce you produce with strings. Plucked strings primarily among the ancient Greeks, but then as bowed string instruments developed, the Christians came to show their angels and their good characters playing violins or harps. And this was actually in ancient Greek times, this was a theory that the sound of the stringed instruments brings us to elevated thoughts, whereas the sounds of the wind and the percussion make us want to have a good time. And that they were built into those very sonorities and those modes that those instruments played in. So there, there is a shift that occurs, and whether it's the Protestant Reformation, but certainly you start to get this idea of the fiddle being the devil's instrument, which is we found that when we were in Italy so often, we'd look up at the top of some wonderful basilica and there would be an angel playing a cello or a violin, this very idea you're talking about, but then uh, you have this other idea of this was the, uh, the devil's instrument. Any idea how that might have happened? I believe that comes out of medieval legends, folk tales primarily, where the heavenly is distorted by the devil and made into something hellish. So the type of violin playing that is associated with the devil would be much more aggressive and percussive than that that would be associated with the angels. And it would also be used often, well, in the tradition of seduction. The fiddler is legendary for being a seductive character, you know, the mu using the music to get that girl to pay attention to him. And I wonder, you know, how that plays into other people's uh, resentment of that. Well, actually, in this Baroque Italian painting, there is a suggestion that the music of the angels is so seductive that it transforms Mary Magdalene. And the, the painter is also showing that by all of the light, the reflected light that he is showing on the skin of Mary Magdalene. And of course her story was that she started out as a prostitute and was transformed by her exposure to Jesus. And I, th I think this would be Dionysus almost in terms of going back to that idea yeah. that, that this is the power to transform her 
from the earthly pleasures, right. the carnal world. Right. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. Also, the, how the, the, the way the instrument is particularly depicted in this painting is not as important as the darkness in the background and the light portrayed on Magdalena. And the artist really uh, didn't feel it important to make it an authentic depiction of the instrument. So it's a very interesting way of displaying the instrument in here. Also, um, when you look at the list of paintings that involve stringed instruments in the gallery, it seems to fall into some three categories. Like there's a professional grade category, as we saw in the uh, depiction of the girl with the lute, where you have very fine instruments, and then you have very folk-oriented instruments that are hand-hewn by uh, paisans. And then you have mythological and religious uh, depictions of instruments. But however, you don't see a whole lot of pagan or instruments depicted with uh, Beelzebub, which was his instrument of choice, a stringed instrument, a violin. So, Actually, we do have some striking examples of the devil as violinist in our collection, but they okay. are all drawings. We don't have any of them in oil paint that's hanging on the walls. They never got that far. Uh, huh? The Frenchman Coyote, am I pronouncing that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Coyote, uh, depicted some uh, caricatures, uh, short, stumpy people that are very round playing the violin, but wearing like a, a carnival mask, almost like a pagan ritual. Mm -hmm. And he was famous for making these caricatures. For some reason, he liked to etch or draw hunchbacks and, and people mm -hmm. of just um, grotesque, small, pudgy physical features, and they played the violin in, in a lot of instances. And so maybe that could be considered one of those. It's almost pan-like. Yeah. yeah. So explain the room we're in and how it was created. So we've stepped into a room that was brought to the National Gallery piece by piece from a, an 18th century palace in France that was being dismantled. So everything around us is from the 18th century right down to the parterre floorboards that we're standing on. And the decor of the room includes some lunettes. These are paintings that were placed above doorways as a way of kind of framing the space. And in this case, the theme of the lunettes is uh, caricature or satire. And it makes a comic scene out of something that would otherwise be a normal human activity. The one that we're looking at right now is a scene in which cats are a little orchestra. And they even have a cat conductor who's dressed up in very fine clothes. They all are dressed in very fine clothes. And it's probably a po poking fun at the very uh, self-important orchestras that would play in this palace and other royal scenes in France. And I think in this picture, you have the fiddler as also conductor, where you would have the plane and then the, the baton, in fact, being the, uh, the fiddle bow, which I believe often happened in... Yeah, in, in uh, older times, before Jean-Baptiste Lully came about and injured himself and died from the podium orchestras were led by their concertmaster, which was the primary or first violinist, and he ticked off the orchestra and, and conducted them through their uh, music.
performance. So tell me that story that you alluded to. Well, Jean-Baptiste Lully was in the court of uh, Stephen, correct me, is it Louis XIV? Yes. Yes, so he was the uh, minister of music, so to speak, and uh, he was a tyrant, basically, and controlled most of the music in France. And I believe this was about the time of the Opera Lafayette, was it? Mm -hmm. And uh, And he, he was a violinist. Uh, I don't know if he was a violinist. I believe he was trained as a violinist, yes. yes. So he was basically our first um, conductor. And he conducted from a large podium, very tall, uh, with a large staff, very heavy. And the staff had a metal uh, spike on it. And so he would be conducting and stomping on this wooden podium to keep the orchestra together. Uh, you can imagine uh, playing that light-hearted French music with all of this pounding going on on a box with him on top of it. Well, one day um, he missed the box and uh, impaled himself in his foot. It became gangrenous and he died from that, which uh, probably the musicians of the court of Louis XIV were thankful for. Freed from their tired. Yeah. But what it did, though, it freed musicians in France to be more creative. They weren't under his severe control, and uh, therefore the French uh, evolved music quite a bit. Yeah, there's a, a quite an explanation for why the French violin never reached the levels that the Italian violins reached because of this state control in the way that uh, you know you could only do certain things if you had state license. You had to be trained in certain kinds of skills. Mm-hmm. And it really impeded the development of the violin in France, where Italy was free of those constraints, and it bloomed. But later, the French bow wound up becoming really the signature instrument. And then, of course, later, the French violins became excellent. But there was a a real window of time of several hundred years or more, hundred years or more, where they lagged far behind the the, uh, Italian violins. This needs to be said. After about 1780, the French really picked up the ball and ran with it with improving violin technique. De Berio wrote some etudes that gave us the multiple double stops, all the stuff that Paganini, people think he pioneered, wasn't pioneered by him. He was just doing what De Berio invented many years before. In fact, we all study, if you um, want to become proficient in the instrument, you all study the, the De Berio techniques and Boeing techniques also that he invented. So much later about, I don't know, I think it's 1810, 1820, the modern violin bow evolved with Mr. Tort, and then from then on, the instrument, uh, by about the 1870s, um, with the uh, advent of J.B. Viome and his shop, and Teresio, who supplied him with all the great Stradivariuses, which he would eventually copy, and the Maginis, which he would eventually copy and produce, produce some extremely fine instruments. Now we're back to about 1540, and we're looking at a Renaissance painting that is actually a cartoon, that is, a story in one frame. It's by Michelangelo Anselmi, and it's the story of Apollo and Marcius. And the significance of the violin in this painting is that it, at the time, 
was considered to be the instrument of Apollo. And indeed, in this scene, he is shown playing it. It's actually an instrument that was called the viola da braccia. Uh, appears to be somewhat larger than a violin, but it's still uh, small enough to be held by the left arm of the player. And this is, among other things, a testament to the superiority of string music over other kinds of music. This is how the story goes. We start at the right side of the painting, where we see the uh, goddess Diana represented and she has been out in the woods hunting, and she comes across a bagpipe. And she thinks, oh, this is an interesting thing. I'm going to try playing this. But when she sees the reflection of herself in the water playing this bagpipe, she f is horrified because she has to puff her cheeks and she looks terrible playing it. So she throws it down on the ground. And a little bit later, the demigod Marcius comes along in the same woods, and he finds the bagpipe and picks it up and starts to play it, and he thinks this is the last word. This is such a great instrument. I'm going to challenge my rival Apollo to a duel. I'm going to play this instrument. He can play his violin, and I'm sure to win. So he challenges Apollo, and Apollo warns him. He says, do not do this you're going to lose this contest. And when you do, your, your punishment is going to be terrible. But Marcius insists, so they have the contest, and the two are shown here playing their respective instruments. But of course, Apollo wins. After all, Apollo was a god, and Marcius was only a demigod. And Apollo was playing a string instrument, and Marcius was playing the bagpipe, which is a wind instrument. Yes, indeed, Apollo wins, and on the left side, we see Marcius's punishment. He's being skinned alive. My Lord. And the moral of the story is, listen to and obey people in authority, because if you don't, the punishment is terrible. And the fellow that leads the group is, is the fiddler. <laughs> The instruments depicted in this uh, painting, as you have bagpipes, Apollo is playing the viol de braccia, which in modern times is a tenor or an alto instrument known as the viola. In German, they call the viola a braccia, which means arm. And then if you look in the butches at the bottom of the painting, you have an actual viol that's probably a tenor or a soprano. So I don't know why there are differences there or why that is the, the viola de braccia is being played rather than the violin, but that's just my bias being a violinist, I think. What do we know about this painter? There are not very many of his works surviving, but he did tend quite often to paint scenes like this in response to commissions from people who wanted to teach a lesson through the symbols in the paintings. And it would seem at that period that most of those paintings, if you were to tell a story, it would be based on biblical stories. But he's reaching back to, he's to reaching Greek back, mythology. This he's is reaching a new back to ancient Greece. Yeah. Right. And this was, in fact, the fashion 
at his time in the Renaissance. Okay. Renaissance means rebirth, and in detail it means rebirth of interest in things ancient from ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Even the morality tales of that time. Absolutely. It's also, uh, I think, uh, a depiction of stringed instruments in a pagan environment versus a more Christian or modern uh, religious environment. There's a story from the mountains that I heard only once about the devil who would have these contests, fiddle contests, you know, with mere mortals and, and then defeat them. Sort of Charlie Daniels took that and kind of turned it on his head. But this one was a dulcimer player and uh, who the devil came up and said, and this fellow was just such a good dulcimer, this is lap dulcimer. And they wound up having a contest and basically we can still tell who's best. And if I win, well, it turns out the fellow who had made this dulcimer, his father had made it for him, had used pure silver strings instead of just steel strings or whatever it was back in those days. And when he, he strums it for the first time, the devil falls to the ground and writhes in pain. There's something about pure silver, the sound, that's like on the harps of heaven or something that's in the tale. And that's how Tom wins the contest with the dulcimer and the devil. I never heard a variation of a story until that one time, you know, that sort of had brought in another instrument. And here you have the bagpipe and the fiddle having it out between powers. I like that. There's one other interesting point about depictions of Apollo and Orpheus from this period, the 1500s, the 1600s. In paintings like this one by Anselmi, these characters are shown playing the violin. But we all know that their instrument was the lyre. But we have to remember that in the 16th and 17th centuries, the only information that these people had from these ancient stories were the texts. And when they read the text in Greek or in Latin, it said Apollo played the lyra, or Orpheus played the lyra. But at that same time in Italy, the word for violin was lyra, and nobody knew anything about these sculptures that eventually were unearthed that showed these people playing lyres. So they assumed, ah, Apollo played the violin. Orpheus played the violin. I like the fact that Apollo in this painting also has his, uh, his quiver of arrows. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, that idea of shooting the arrow, you know, into the heart, into the deepest part of your psyche, and the fiddle having this ability to seem to do that, to reach into your most intimate places, either joyfully or with great sadness. I just wonder why Apollo chose the viola rather than the violin. Had it evolved at that point? Well, yeah, they had... Uh, well, oh, you mean the size of instrument? Uh, yeah, you can obviously tell if you look at the violin that's hidden in the bushes, it's much smaller. If you look at the upper bout, it's much smaller than the instrument that Apollo is holding. And therefore, why did he choose that? The darker sounding instrument over the higher pitched instrument. Just a curiosity. And there is a, a detail of this story that I didn't mention, and maybe it does have something to do with the choice of instrument that's shown with Apollo, and that is that another reason that Apollo won the contest was that with his instrument, he could sing and play at the same time. But Marcius could not, because he had to keep blowing to keep the bag full. And I, I've thought about this, that I've, I've, you know, the idea of, again, why does this shamanistic quality come with the violin? 
is if it's really played well, it can be continuous sound. Now the bagpipe is almost one of the other instruments that can almost do that because you blow into it, but you can keep the sound constant and it has uh, a certain kind of um, seductive quality to it too because of that. The fellow Abner the eccentric, the great mime, said there's only three things we do in life. We breathe in, we breathe out, or we hold our breath. That's it. And he said the first thing you do when you're born is you breathe in, last thing you do is you breathe out. Something about a musical instrument that can be continuous, the tone can be continuous without where other instruments you have to take a breath, you have to break it, even a plucked instrument. You don't have that with a stringed instrument. You can maintain a constant pitch if you have the right boat technique. And that can, that can almost conjure up this other force. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that we organists also lay claim to, ah. is the ability to produce a continuous legato sound without any trace of, of breathing as one of the special effects that we can produce with the instrument. So maybe that's why it has a godlike quality, because as us mere mortals, we breathe in, we breathe out. There you go. Well, when, you, when you equate the length of the modern bow, it's uh, just as long as you could phrase singing a note or a phrase as your human lungs could do when you think about it. Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, nowadays, even the wind players are developing techniques to oh, yeah. make it seem like there's, they're not taking a breath. There's circular breathing, but yeah. there's a lot of snorting that goes on, and it's not particularly appetizing. <laughs> I knew a guy who could whistle in and out and do it well, oh, yeah, and he yeah. could do tunes, yeah. but yeah, that, that's an art. The violin was just as important in 19th century American culture as it was in any of these other cultures that we've talked about this morning. It was the sound that people heard when there was something good going on. It was, there was a fiddler at weddings, there was a town fiddler for dances. It was basically the portable instrument of the culture. And every time a person saw an image of a violin in a painting, it would bring to mind the feelings that they would have had when they were in the presence of somebody playing the violin. And that's exactly what was intended in this painting that we're looking at right now, which is the Jolly Flat Boatman by George Caleb Bingham, painted in 1846. It shows eight sailors, or boatmen as they were called, seated on a raft uh, that is floating gently down a river and they are passing the time by making music and dancing. And you can tell from the posture of the dancer that it is a jig and it's a, a, a moment of, of fun. And the instrumentalists are a fiddler who's playing an instrument that is quite obviously a simple folk instrument, not a fancy violin. And a player who has improvised and is using a frying pan as the percussion. The detail of this painting that I really love is that Bingham has given us a hint as to what tune that fiddler is playing. We're looking at a cage that is underneath the dancer 
and we're seeing the head of a bird poking out of the cage. Can you identify the bird? Well, it's a rooster of some sort, isn't it? Or I mean a hen? It's a turkey. It was a turkey. And what was the most popular tune <laughs> in 1846? Turkey and the Straw. Right. Absolutely. I love that, you know, those hidden things in paintings. Now, now when Bingham, uh, this painting was done and then it got distributed so broadly in so many ways in our society and became this of maybe all his paintings the most iconic. Do you have any idea on the background of that story, how that all came about? Well, it was, of course, good business in the mid-19th century to produce etchings or other reproductions of paintings so that they would have broader distribution, that more people would get to see them. The etchings sort of covered the circuit before a painting went on tour. And of course, wherever it appeared, then people would buy tickets to come to that place and see it. So this was, in fact, uh, the, the art business of the mid-19th century. But there was also the good feelings about American culture that could be promoted by a painting like this one mm -hmm. that shows common people having a great time together, working and playing at the same time, and enjoying music. Right, and I think this idea of the, uh, that, that quintessential American uh, character that had developed in overcoming the frontier or expanding into these areas and the power of the river, uh, despite some of the darker things that were really going on in terms of what happened with some of the Indian tribes, what happened in the Civil War that was coming soon. There was a lot of strife, a lot of tension, but this promotes a picture. I mean, the flat boatmen themselves were, were, were not necessarily desirable people in the early days. Sometimes whole gangs of them would come in and take over a town. They were a rough bunch. You have the whole Mike Fink mythology. But this seems to be a very different kind of picture of the flat boatmen. And I, I'm just looking at it historically. What happens with the flatboats is when the steamboats come along, then suddenly everybody can be a flatboatman because this is really how you can get your crops down to a market in, in New Orleans, and you can take the steamboat home. And even Abraham Lincoln did a summer taking a flatboat down with, with his stuff from their farm. So any river that ran into the Mississippi, if you had land near it, you could cut the trees, make your own flatboat. And it became a real outing. A lot of times the men in the family would do this one summer. This was a grand adventure. But earlier than this, you have this darker, darker period of the flatboatmen, almost river pirate kind of characters outside the law, outside of civilization. And this painting falls right about in the time when that's shifting. Historically, it does. So I'm just wondering why it you know, became so popular for people. Well, I think the point can be made that art and the power of art was used for propaganda purposes in America, just as it was in other parts of the world. And this would have been a piece of positive propaganda. This would have been a claim that the common American worker, the flat boatman, is in fact a jolly, positive, productive uh, person. Yeah. 
And I think the violin also became this idea in a democracy, the violin is no longer an instrument of the court. It's an instrument of the common people and available to everyone. That's right. And we also see uh, flutes quite frequently in paintings like this, other instruments that were not very expensive and that lots of people were able to learn to play. Great, thanks. Bruno, is there anything you want to say on this? There's uh, not much to say. I mean, the depiction of the instrument there is a, a very um, colloquially made uh, instrument um, that's hand-fashioned and of a very folk-like nature. Yeah. I love the turkey and straw. I wish I had looked a little closer. <laughs> Chicken rooster fights, you know, that's what I was thinking of. No, You're right, that, turkey in the straw. Red, um, oh, I've forgotten what the, the, the organ is called, but that thing that dangles from the bird's chin, yeah. that, uh, that definitely indicates that it's a turkey. Yeah. And of course, then you, you get it. Oh, of course, turkey in the straw. Right. Yeah. So let's have a little bit of that popular tune, Turkey in the Straw, recorded in 1928 by Gid Tanner and the Skillet Lickers. also from the mid-19th century, and it is a still life. And the main object in this still life painting is an old violin. The painting is called The Old Violin, and it's by John Frederick Pito. This painting and a number of other paintings of violins hanging on a wall or on a door were icons in just the same way that the Flat Boatman painting was. They were reproduced by etchings and other formats and taken around the country on exhibition. Now, still life, of course, performs another function in the culture. A still life painting is supposed to be a serious reminder of the fact that we're all gonna die and that life is precious and that it is fleeting. And Still lifes, more often than not, include a musical instrument because of the fleeting nature of music. You hear it in the moment and it's gone. 
This, of course, was the day before recordings. So music itself becomes a symbol for what a still life is all about. Other objects, of course, are there. In this case, we have a very badly worn out hinged door. All the parts of it are broken and rusty. The, the wood is, the paint is chipped, the wood is uh, cracked. It has the remnants of things that used to be pasted on it that have been ripped off. And it has the artist's initials carved in the wood. There's a painting like this at the Met in New York. And I have always been curious why they are popular. They seem so stagnant, or still, they're still lifes. I mean, uh, I've not ever been drawn to them, but they must really appeal to, to the American psyche or to humans. The master of this genre was William Harnett. And both the Met and the National Gallery have an example of his still life work that prominently features the violin. Ours, unfortunately, is not on the walls right now. But uh, this one does many of the same things that the Harnet does. And in fact, Pito painted this because of the success of William's Harnet's painting by the same name, the old violin. The other thing that I wanted to mention is the condition of the piece of sheet music that is pinned on the door behind the violin. It is tattered, it is wrinkled, and the artist was attempting, through a technique that we call trompe l'oeil, to make it look like there is an actual piece of sheet music hanging in this painting behind the violin. So he is using the oil and using the shadows in ways that make it look like this object is actually three-dimensional. Last night, I'm at the Violin Society of America, and I gave a talk for the opening after the banquet and, and talked about the violin and sort of this mythical side to it that I'm fascinated by. And afterwards, this man came up in his 60s with his wife and told a story that I've heard in other variations, but I really heard as a true story. He was quite emotional about it, and it was about his grandfather, who at one point had to go up to Canada for work. He had been a violinist and played the fiddle. And he went up to Canada for work and was up there. And then the cousins one day came over to the house where the fiddle had been left, sitting on top of a piano or something. And they'd heard it play. They heard a few notes from it. They came over all excited about it. And long and short of the story is they received a telegram shortly after it. It was exactly the time that he had died. And uh, it was told to me last night, that story. So it has that sense of the ephemeral nature of right. life. Well, the instrument depicted in this particular pito is of a very folk-like nature. The, all the strings are in the proper order, but the E string is broken and, and tattered. It almost looks as if the E peg is broken, but it's just hard to see in the painting. The music in the background behind the violin makes no melodic or harmonic sense whatsoever. And the bow is, uh, is probably need, in need of some rehairing and, and needs a grip also. So uh, when you look at the instrument carefully, it has a fine patina around the middle of the bout of the instrument of some rosin. So it has been played recently. And the rosin was just never, ever wiped off. So it, it has what we call la moustache or the mustache in the center bout. The instrument doesn't look like of 
an Italian origins due to its uh, blocky shoulders and blocky lower about. But interestingly enough, um, it has a very fine tailpiece that you would find on a, a nicely um, crafted instrument. So that's been borrowed from other source. Fingerboard's in fine condition, and it is of a modern length, not a Baroque length, which would make it shorter. But if you look at the corner bouts on the C bouts, they are finely worn where the instrument has been played. If you notice, the corners on the right side of the instrument, particularly this one, has been knocked off a little bit or rubbed smooth. But look how the detail of this one is. This one's left intact and is of a very French nature, the corner bout here. The C bouts are asymmetric and so are the um, F holes. And if you notice, one of the F holes is missing the notch. Now, also, the way the violin is set up is set up just like a um, an amateur would. For instance, this bridge is spruce. You can actually see the striations of the wood. So it's identified as spruce. But it it's, uh, doesn't have any ornamental cuttings in it. It's just a block of spruce that's been hand-fashioned probably by uh, someone in the family because their original bridge probably broke, and so they got another piece of spruce to replace it. Normally, the bridge is placed right in line with the notches in the F-holes, but you see how the F-holes are very asymmetrical and misshapen, so that shows uh, an amateur made the instrument. The instrument's bridge is placed too far back. In fact, who knows if it even has a sound post at this point, but the, the bridge should go right about here, and then the sound post would go right behind it. A sound post transmits energy and vibrations throughout the top of the instrument to the rear of the instrument. And then on the left side, there's a bass bar, which transfers vibrations up and down the table or the top of the violin. Do you think this artist knew enough about music to know exactly what he was doing? Yeah, I think so. He was very careful to contrast this from Harnett's painting, and that Harnett's instrument is extremely vertical. The bow is hung carefully. The music in the background is actual music. It comes from Stephen. Um, Harnett uh, painted musical scores so precisely that if you stand in front of his paintings, you can play them. And in his still life, behind the violin, he hangs the sheet music for a violin transcription of Viraviso from La Sonambula, which is an aria uh, lamenting the passing of familiar and beloved things. Right. And as Pito displays the condition of the instrument in the same manner as the barn door is being displayed. Notice there's cracks in the barn door, there's cracks in the instruments, and this hasn't been repaired. Chances are the table is separated from the ribs just due to the violin hanging here in a dry environment. It tends to come apart, and that's natural for violins. They're glued together with horsehide glue, and it's meant to flex with the instrument. And in Harnett's case, it's a very formal uh, presentation of an instrument of someone who actually plays it all the time. So. Um, there is some patina for the, the rosin, and there's, there's some wear on the instrument. However, the instrument's in much better condition, and it's a, a, a much nicer instrument, uh, a more professional caliber. In fact, we see this quite consistently when a string instrument is used in a scene that is supposed to suggest death, that one of the strings is broken. Normally, it's the E string, which is 
the one most likely to break. Didn't Paganini have, or, or legend has it, that he had a, a kind of performance thing where he would arrange for each string slowly to break, but he'd keep playing this very complex tune until right, he was left was, on one string. That was part of his shtick, his, his showmanship. I mean, he was our first rock star. Yeah. So. Well, maybe metaphorically, we're all doing this. We get to a certain age. You've just retired. We're still learning to play our whole story yeah. on just a few less strings. Whatever's right? left over. Yes. That's right. <laughs> still works. Think of it as a hip replacement or something. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater with additional help from our daughter, Emily McHugh. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about this podcast and for images of the paintings that are discussed in the podcast, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast and that you will tell your friends about Rosin the Bow. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.